0: the 1 2 Hello podcast fans, apocalypse survivors and music listeners. Uh, my name is Jack Welcome to episode seven of Albums for the Apocalypse. I'm with my co host Amos. Hello. And this week we are taking it back to the 80s. Um, Also, did you try and leave it as long as you could there before saying hello? I I did pause (laughs) a bit. Dramatic, dramatic, dramatic. Yeah, do it for dramatic effect. So um, this week is the first in our 80s series where basically. Uh, every few weeks we're going to try and throw in a year from the decade of the 80s because we personally believe that that is one of the most influential at least and significant decades in music history so starting at the start because that is what you're meant to do we're starting at 1980 this week Amos you want to tell a little bit more about the 80s before we before I intro this and set the scene for 1980?
1: Yeah I suppose it's one of these, I think it's a decade the reason we say it's quite influential is because it's right in this transition point of music where it's, you obviously have the rise of pop music a lot more in terms of like the synths and what kind of the pop music we know now. Um, you had obviously the rise of hip hop and stuff. So late eighties, you had NWA, Beastie Boys, as well as others. I mean, this in 1980, you had Sugar Hill Gang. So you obviously had that lot as well. Um, glam rock sort of came and died in the eighties. It, uh, did brilliantly and then just disappeared because Nirvana released, well they released, Never mind in 90s, but their debut was 89. Um, yeah, just huge changing point in the music industry and kind of how genres started to split and splinter, I think, up until this point it was predominant, it wasn't as split in terms of where genres went. Um, it was a lot more straightforward and I think the 80s is definitely where people started to be a bit weirder with the stuff they were doing or like push,
0: definitely.
1: push the boundaries a bit more and yeah. Very, very interesting decade for classic albums as well, I think, as we'll discuss this week.
0: So, I'm going to set the scene. The year is 1980. There are just 4.5 billion people on the earth, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. Um, Thatcher is the Prime Minister. Reagan is being elected, taking over from Jimmy Carter in the US. In the world of music, John Lennon has been murdered in December. Um, Super Trooper was the best-selling UK album in 1980. And Don't stand So Close To Me by The Police was the best-selling single. Interestingly, none of the albums we picked this week even featured in the top tens of either of those. Really? Yeah, Even. I know. Yes, we'll get there. Bizarre. Um, in the world of sport, Liverpool won Division One. The Bjorn-Borg-McEnroe rivalry was at its peak. Um, I guess West Germany, they won the-, the Euros, beat Belgium 2-1 in the final. Uh, USA won the Miracle on Ice in Lake Placid. Rosie Ruiz, this is a good one. Rosie Ruiz, do you know who she is? I think... He famously cheated in the Boston Marathon this year. Oh yes, yeah, I know about jumped that. On the course with half a mile remaining, and claimed victory. Um, yeah, I've heard the story. So significant people did die. So we lost um, Jean-Paul Sartre, Alfred Hitchcock, John Bonham from the world of music, and obviously Lennon. Um, and some people we're probably going to talk about today, obviously. Yes. Um, and replacing them, we got Xavi, Yao Ming, Kim Kardashian, and DJ Paulie D. <laughs> so make of those trades what you will. Um, also, actually, Adam Goods, who a lot of people probably won't have heard of, but he's one of the most important um sporting civil rights activist that people probably haven't heard of in australia is an aussie rules player um, so that's an interesting one uh pac-man was released in 1980 and now me and you are going to travel back there and uh i guess discuss three albums what have you gone for this week amos
1: so i mean i was going to pick uh, our fan suggestion but then when it got suggested i was like you know what, i'm gonna have a look and look around and see what else I can see. So I ended up going with a bit of a curveball for what we typically go for, and I went with Dolly Parton, 9 to 5 and Odd Jobs.
0: Nice, nice. Uh, I went for Closer by Joy Division. Um, just saw it as a good opportunity, I think, to, to look at Joy Division, because obviously this is one of their two albums. Um, and finally, from Matt Russell, as you mentioned, we have... ACDC, Back in Black, which, I mean, I think we had to do. Yeah, we had to do it in the 1980s. So, without further ado, I think we should get started. Up
1: first is Dolly Parton uh, with her 23rd studio album, 9 to 5 and Odd Jobs. So... I don't. Know, I'm, I was kind of hard on where to like introduce introduce this one. So I thought f- I figured i will choose why I, why I picked it. So like I mentioned in the intro, uh, I was originally going to pick ACDC Back in Black, but when it was suggested by fans, I thought you know I'm going to look for something that's a bit more off the wall, a bit different. See if I can bring in a something that's just not a straight a rock record from the '80s, which is obviously the probably the primary genre at that point. Um, and I looked around and I saw Dolly Parton had nine to five in odd job, so I gave it a quick listen. And then I remember mess- I messaged Jack and went fuck this is actually really good might have to pick this one um so I went ahead and picked it um again before we dive into it I think it's worth noting our that country is probably one of our least visited genres between the two of us as a whole
0: that being yeah
1: that being said like I do like Johnny Cash I've liked Dolly Parton as a singles artist and my favorite album from last year was a country record from Orville Peck who we both really like uh, so, we, it's not like we're afraid of country by any means. It's more the beers and tractor side of country that I don't think we tend to go on, mm-hmm. uh, which this record isn't. And it's also not, as you'd expect, like a Johnny Cash style country record. It's a lot more popular than perhaps you'd associate with that sort of genre. However, it is a more country record than Dolly's work in the late 70s, which was a lot poppier So, it mm-hmm. if you look at it just as a straight record from, from Dolly's catalogue, you'd be like, oh, that's quite poppy, but. Compared to our other stuff around this time, it was perhaps a bit more country. As I said, this record really surprised me
0: with how good it is. What did you think, Jack? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, it's released to go with a—is it a film or a TV show? A uh, film. So Dolly f-
1: starred yeah. in this on, 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 in the film Nine to Five, hence the lead single and the title Nine to Five, which everyone will know. Everyone knows working nine to five. But yeah, yeah. You, you know that song, um, which is why which what which is what made this album quite interesting for me as well. Um, yeah, yeah, huge surprise, I think. I mean, it's a concept album around the concept of working or w- women in work, uh, hence the title in the film, Working 9 to 5. But beyond that, there's quite a few interesting songs in here. Um, I suppose we'll start with should we start with House Rising Sun, the, the cover.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the clarify. This is one of my favourite songs, like, generally. I've, this week has cemented that because I spent a lot of this week listening to multiple covers of this song. Um, it's actually nobody. It's one of those songs that, like, we talked about this earlier in the week. Like, nobody knows where it came from. Like, there is no explanation of who wrote it.
1: So that was a very common theme in the '70s with like Led Zeppelin and stuff, where they would and just general like that blues influence music and country. Obviously, when they take these bluegrass Mississippi songs or whatever uh, folk songs and they turn them into these pop songs because they obviously have that chorus and hook, which House of the Rising Sun does.
0: The earliest recording recorded, well, not recorded, like as in the earliest noted, like, um, occurrence of it is 1905 with Miners singing it in, um, California, I believe. And that's like the first time that it was kind of known of. But I mean, if you look at the people that have covered it, obviously, famously, The Animals is probably it's, it's famous the big book. cover, yeah. Um, Old J have got more recently done a cover of it and, don't put yourself through that; you'll really regret it. It's t- it's absolutely terrible. Um, Nina Simone did a cover of it, um, and my personal favourite, but we kind of had a bit of debate, is Bob Dylan's. But I think this cover is actually really good as well. She kind of definitely puts her own spin on it. Yeah, the um, um,
1: the synth lead in it is really really good. Yeah, <laughs> the way yeah. The, the way the synth's <laughs> come in on it, like that, completely threw me off because up until this point, you had nine to five, but still has a bit of a country twang to it. Um, you then have by Hard Times," which is pretty much a straight country pop song, and yeah. then you have "House of the Rising Sun," which just comes in with this synth lead completely out of nowhere, and just. And then
0: it's followed by "Deportee," is it not? I think "Deportee" is the next song. I think
1: it is "Deportee," yeah. Which again yeah. is just another complete surprise of a song, um, which I suppose we can get. Yeah, "Deportee," "Plain Wreck," at Los Gatos" with the, but yeah, that's another one that's a mental thing to consider that Dolly Parton wrote this song like
0: yeah so so basically deportee is about um workers that she in in the kind of concept she talks about she's working with these um immigrants she doesn't really specify whether they're legal or not but like either way they're being deported and she talks about how like they have their name but when they get on the plane is the is the lyric like they won't have a name anymore they'll just be deportee and they're done and like It almost is weird. To me, it's very weird and quite sad to think that that is something that was such a big, well, such an issue then in 1980 and we still have stuff as bad. Still as relevant. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the way she, I think what's notable here is like, this This is what kind of surprised me. Obviously, it's being a concert record about working. Dolly Parton's a great songwriter and composer. Like she works outside of her own music to write songs with people and things like that. So she's not, it's not like she's just one of these crafted pop stars. She's actually genuinely talented person. Um, but that's with
0: one of the things, to be fair, they often I've found a lot of country musicians are very collaborative.
1: If yeah, you look but,
0: at the list of albums, like she's worked with so many people. She has so many collaborations. Yeah, she, she, she
1: part wrote "I Will Always Love You."
0: <laughs> I mean, that's insane.
1: <laughs> like that's that's the sort of like level of that Dolly Parton should be considered. And not and she actually this is complete tangent but she's actually very much noted for saying that she knows she's only known for her boobs um even though And she she's, she,
0: a, there's this joke she said um on an oprah winfrey interview where she was like like talking about her, the plastic surgery she'd had it was in the noughties oh, I think, yeah, I think. yeah and she said that it costs a lot of money to look this cheap
1: <laughs> like, so, <laughs> so she acknowledges like this but like i think especially our generation often forget often don't even realize it's not even forget like how talented she actually is and then yeah um which is kind of shown in this record i think like we were talking about with deportee she's very blunt like it's not subtle at all it's she actually lists their names off and then says when you get on the plane you're just a deportee like mm. it's, it's very obvious what she's talking about she doesn't hide behind any of that um yeah i mean this record starts off with the first three songs being relatively fast-paced upbeat dancey songs then it hits yeah. this sort of country ballad almost style which is obviously where the country twang is she i mean her vocals alone are quite country anyway in terms of that twang but yeah i mean i i'm not too sure what else to go into this being it it does just have that slight poppy edge to it which i think
0: takes which i think, I think something i i wanted to kind of touch on actually and especially in the last few tracks um i've what the one's called there's one where uh i think it's called a working girl or something yeah um yeah that on that track like so i think that definitely for this era and if you read the reviews of this you can tell it ruffled feathers from the reviews yeah because she talked she talked about working women and she didn't like obviously people know her for her look or whatever but she talked about working women in every facet like such a like she presented such a multifaceted concept of a woman in work being all sorts of different roles all sorts of different kind of professionalisms and like in the 80s that was still quite a fledgling concept yeah 100% Uh, Um,
1: and I mean and I think the fact that a pop star because I mean although she's a country music star she is essentially a pop culture icon pop star to be able to write a concept album around that theme as well in the 80s like when you know nowadays you'd be like that's cool that's really well but in, like back then obviously it was a lot the misogyny and stuff especially in the music industry
0: you've got to think glam can, rock if you if you look at the reviews you can see they there's comments made about like oh you know like kenny loggins impact on her and stuff like that. they all the comments are kind of negative or tying her to a man that she like so for example she worked with kenny loggins just before this. yes and it's like all of it is trying to almost take away from her success or is just trying to drag the album through the mud almost.
1: Yeah. I um, mean, I I, I, yeah. Yeah, I don't get I think I mean this like I said, this completely surprised me as being a only really knowing the Dolly Part and singles. Like I knew, everyone knows nine to five, like all our listeners, you would have heard nine to five multiple times. You would have danced a bit drunk at a wedding or at a staff party, whatever. You would have you would have definitely heard it. Um but it's beyond that where this album definitely really surprised me in the sense that one it's bloody good like really good um the closing song poor folks town has a cracking hook on it that's so much like it's slightly slower verses slightly more delicate and then it hits with this really poppy hook on the chorus um which completely throws you off after a few slow songs but like you've been saying like the way that she could write something that's so I guess empowering, I suppose is the right word, for women. and Especially when you look at the 80s as a genre with glam rock, where bands like uh, Motley Crue and Van Halen were quite demeaning. And even before that, you had bands like Led Zeppelin and stuff were also very demeaning towards women in the ha- way they behaved um, and the way they sung. Um, so the, when the industry itself, even though it still definitely is, um, was a lot more openly misogynistic, I suppose, is the best word. But the way she was willing to come out and put an album that was so positive towards women being in the workplace and working around others. And then also like a, something like Deep Auti, uh, a lot more political song. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, I just, like, kind of... We say this about a few albums, I guess. I think we normally say about one album a week. But this is definitely the album this week where I think, like, if you haven't heard this, which you probably haven't, go away and listen to it because it is... It is just not what you would expect and I think it will change a lot of people's perspective on Dolly yeah 100% because I, I went into this
1: knowing Dolly had done humanitarian work and stuff and like but not knowing the depths of it but her, her very much it was a she She sung Jolene and she's got big boobs because that's how she's portrayed in pop culture not really diving yeah. deeply into her work but yeah this this is yeah. probably my biggest surprise of the podcast so far I think
0: definitely Yeah. in
1: terms of definitely. what how much I liked it as a big one, but also just generally how good it is, the whole concept around it. It's not just a pop album, it's got a lot more going on. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure what else to say. I mean, the guitar work on it's brilliant. Uh, Hush Up Hard Times is a cracking sort of little country lead lick that you can't help but yeah. like dance to. Um, and as we mentioned, there's been, there's synths, there's keys, there's so many more elements going on than just a standard country record or a standard pop record. So yeah, really good on that one.
0: I think we both kind of. Well, I think we both definitely enjoyed that. Um, yeah. It's time to maybe move on to album number two. So, album number two, um, we're going to take things down a notch. Uh, welcome to the the sad boy section. Um, this is uh, my selection, which was closer from Joy Division. It was the second and final album from the Salford Boys. Um, it was released just after the suicide of their frontman Ian Curtis. Um, actually, one thing people often confuse Love Will Tear Us Apart was released just after this, but was not part of the album. It was just kind of, which obviously their iconic single is probably what most people know, Joy Division 4. Or the um, album cover from Unknown yeah, Pleasures. Yeah. Yeah. Unknown ple- so their first album, Unknown Pleasures, um, is considered one of the most significant albums possible. I mean not only of the kind of seventies but probably
1: British maybe, music uh, in British yeah, music British we'll, we'll
0: talk about it a lot with this this record as well I think yeah so to go into closer a little bit more um basically it was uh put together in an interesting way so they they would write the music and separately Curtis Ian Curtis would go away and write the vocals um write the lyrics He was quite a um, troubled man at the time he was writing this, and that kind of comes across in a few songs. Um, In general, Curtis, I think, throughout much of his short life, it seemed he was quite, as I say, troubled, quite disturbed. Um, He suffered really badly from epilepsy, uh, which made stage shows a massive struggle, um, because obviously the lights and stuff, he would frequently have epileptic fits on stage, which made... He almost tried to make a mockery of it, but it also made like his own performance really difficult. And sometimes he just couldn't perform. There's like a famous time where they had to get uh, the singer from the supporting acts, one of the supporting acts to come on and start performing for them because he just couldn't play. Um, and then sadly, he took his own life just prior to them going on tour in April. I think it was April 1980. Yeah, the first US um, tour. Yeah, that was going to be their first US tour and he just couldn't face, he hated planes. He just wasn't, he couldn't face the idea of going on stage. Um, He was in a really troubled situation with his personal life as well. So like he was kind of, he was married, but then he was also having an affair quite seemingly openly with this Belgian lady called Anique. um, And that was kind of affecting the band a lot from what I kind of could gather Um, I listened to a lot of interviews with Peter Hook, who's quite iconic. He was the bassist, obviously, of Joy Division and went on to when they formed New Order. He was quite a significant part of that, him and Bernard Sumner. Um, So it seemed like they were quite troubled and you can kind of hear it in the record. Um, It's quite an iconic record for its. It's classified as post-punk, but to me, I also hear it in a way that it's, you can hear the foundations of kind of indie music in it, the way in which they use the bass guitar as the lead and um, the kind of vocal style. Ian Curtis is quite iconic vocal style. Um, I enjoyed listening to this a lot again, but I'm interested to see what you think, Amos, because this is not an accessible album in that aspect. Yeah, not at all. I mean, I suppose I'll start with
1: my relationship with this sort of music in the sense that I love New Order and Depeche Mode, um, both very da- lot ier um, I always almost put those into uh, a genre that I like to call goth disco. Um, and then you go back to the late 70s and the early 80s. Well, I mean, bit onwards from the 80s, but you had Joy Division and The Cure definitely coming through from that scene. The Cure also released an album this year. I can't remember what it was called um, for the life of me. They released Boys Don't Cry this year, I think, as well, which is one of their biggest singles. But essentially the cure are this lot more delicate um elegant style of post-punk um they're a lot more sort of beautiful and stuff whereas joy division is a lot more darker um brooding and it's that's that's understandable when you look at ian curtis as a person um and what he's gone, what he went through, I suppose, is probably the better way to put it, yeah. uh, through both, through just generally in life, not just Joy Division as a whole. Um, yeah. It's so it's it's not an easy listen in that sense. That being said, the fact that the, the band behind Ian Curtis went on to form New audit, there is definitely these slightly dancier elements, although the synths aren't as prominent. They're in there in a way which is definitely makes it not necessarily accessible but there's a beat and a rhythm section behind them that um i don't want to say dancey but it's got an element to it which will uh keep you sort of intrigued beyond ian curtis's very um i'm trying to think of the right word here i i'm just gonna use it it's just sad vocals there's there's Probably bigger, yeah, thesaurus, bigger thesaurus words are using it, but they are ultimately sad vocals. Um, this is the birth of sad boy music, I think is the best way to put it, is Joy Division.
0: Yeah. So the the thing, interesting you talk about that, the thing that's most responsible for that kind of, I like to think of it as kind of distant. It's like quite a distant sound in the way in which it's produced. And that's from Martin Hannett, who produced both their albums. Um, and i in your as well, I think. Yeah, but interestingly, he didn't get on that well with Peter Hook. So that's why I think when they formed New Order, they were able to change their sound so much because they kind of strong-armed him into being like, well, look, we want to play it like this. And that's why it changed into being a little bit more of an upbeat, more kind of, like you say, dancey, um, dance-y band. So I guess you touched on there, like the, the strange history that kind of surrounds Joy Division. Um, do you, the reason why they were named Joy Division is in itself pretty crazy. They were named Joy Division because at first they wanted to be called Warsaw after the David Bowie track, Warsaw. But then um, they couldn't because there was some copyright infringement with another band. So they decided to, uh, I think it was Curtis suggested them being called Joy Division because it's the name of a sexual slavery wing of a Nazi concentration camp um, from a a novel called House of Dolls from the 50s. And that was why he selected that, which is dark as as it is yes yeah, uh, yeah. how the whole the weirdest thing with this album right is it's it's inspired supposedly by a book by this guy from this guy called J. G. Ballard called the Atrocity Exhibition but Curtis who obviously wrote all the lyrics had finished writing nearly all the lyrics before he actually read the book so obviously the first track shares the name from it. But like, it's quite I, I, weird. I think
1: that's something where he maybe related a lot more. to I mean, obviously, seeing as this album was released post um, post the suicide, that it's you, there's no you can't really get too many right. interviews yeah, yeah. and like how it, it's very much yeah. up to us. And I think that might be perhaps maybe he his he realised
0: how much his lyrics related to things that went on in the book or like themes and stuff. Um, so he um, the odd thing as well is I guess so I, I looked at that book a bit. It's the whole con- the book got banned, it got pulled from shelves because it's all about, um, it's like all this weird kind of novel fiction about celebrities, it covers like JFK being assassinated, it covers Marilyn Monroe, all this kind of stuff, Reagan, it's very twisted, um, which I guess kind of fits in with, I guess Curtis's, it seems like that was his kind of style of literature. <laughs> That and he did quite like people like Sartre and your philosophers and stuff. But, yeah, um, yeah, he
1: was, he was quite um, cynical, I think, as, as a relative. Yeah, yeah.
0: Again, I think that links
1: into his um, struggles with mental health and life in general. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. quite easy to forget that he was only twenty-three when he died.
0: Yeah, which is crazy to think we're both twenty-four, and like he was just on the cusp of becoming one of the probably one of the most he would have been if not already is one of the most influential. Musicians of the deck he would have been of the eighties i
1: think. I definitely think the way this is um in tandem with this this rise from Britain in terms of post punk with joy division and the cure particularly the way they addressed um and it still runs it runs through today the way they address masculinity and that they could be fragile and yeah. um I suppose feminine is is, is the a term to use because that's what they was like then, but the way they were very open in terms of their lyrics and the way they'd be they weren't this. We sp- I mean we spoke about it a bit with Dolly in the sense that the music industry was very much a, a man's world in the sense that it was this glam rock and you yeah. had like Led Zeppelin and whatnot before that, when it's it's all these um big, you know, showing off your egos where these someone like Ian Curtis come along and do these strained, vulnerable vocals over and ultimately a quite we've spoke about how the rhythm section does have that beat, but it really the way it's produced really pushes his vocals forward and really cuts almost lets his vocals cut through you whilst you're trying to listen to getting caught up in the guitar work and the synths and the drums and the bass it, his vocals kind of cut through you and really hit you harder than the, perhaps they would if they were a bit lower down in the mix and start, uh, yeah it's his straight vocals definitely ha- and also that's all, all that whole style of production and stuff has all been influential forward so well, which i'm sure we'll talk about in a yeah bit.
0: i love i love the drumming on this is so good the bass obviously Peter Hook, um, but the bass is so good on some of the tracks. It's just amazing. Um, the thing that's interesting with this album, and we will talk about this kind of obviously, so with ACDC, we have another album released around the death of a front man, but in a different context. So we'll kind of go on to that when we get there. But with this album, obviously they released it just after he died. They released Love Will Tear Us Apart and they just shut the chapter And that was it. They closed the book. It was done. They didn't they never toured it. Despite it being massively successful review wise, like critics like loved it, was massively acclaimed. They closed the book and they walked away. Love Will Tear Us Apart is considered one of the best singles of that year of nineteen eighty. I think NME gave it. Yeah, um, and if you
1: look if you look I mean everyone knows it from it's a
0: football song, it's everything like it's and They just walked away from it, and Peter Hook in one of the interviews I listened to said that that's like one of his biggest regrets was the fact that they didn't tour it and they didn't get to play it, but they just couldn't because it felt like it wouldn't have been the same without Ian, and it wouldn't have worked. And you know, it's pretty impressive to think that they had they were so young as well. Obviously, they were similar age to Ian, and they had one of their best friends die, and then they were able to recover and form New Order and still build a massive part of british music history but yes yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy to think that it just never never got played live um i think it's one of these things that
1: they couldn't not they couldn't carry on they had to stop um
0: yeah, it, yeah. a lot like
1: um, kurt with nirvana in the sense that ian curtis was so key to the way this band sounded like we, we, we you can wax lyrical all you want about the rhythm section and it is that alone is so huge, and what we go for, what we will probably go forward to and talk about in the series with um, alternative bands from the '80s and into the '90s, especially, and then even nowadays, um, that whole style. But the way Ian Curtis went about his lyrics and the way he went about writing it over these uh, musical contribution uh, compositions that his bandmates gave to him, you can't re- you can't replace that. You simply can't you know, the way they're written, and I think. You mentioned right at the start about how the writing style was done and that they the band produced this um composition almost for Ian Curtis then write lyrics over. While in perhaps the 70s and 80s that wasn't a massive thing to, for bands to do, if you look at a lot of bands nowadays, that's something that a lot of them do. We spoke about it a bit with the Volcano Choir album way back at the start of this um, yeah, podcast absolutely. in terms of how the, the band put together these things and then Justin Vernon would go and write this That's exactly Ian Curtis and Joy Division. That was one of the, I suppose this was one of the albums and one of the bands that really pushed that style in terms of you let a vocalist and a lyricist work with something rather than trying to work together, and it really allows them to push themselves lyrically, themselves vocally uh, to a point where it comes across in such a way that is, um, yeah, it's
0: brilliantly put together. I think. I think I think we have to talk a little bit about Unknown Pleasures. Um, yeah, 100%. In terms of, It's iconic a- in terms of its album cover
1: alone, let alone
0: what's on it. I mean, Unknown Pleasures is an incredible album. I prefer it to this album personally. I think, in general, that's probably the view yeah, well, from most people. I think you know, it's a, bit, it's a bit more of a hit I'm factory. Considered.
1: It's got a few more, not singles, yeah. but it's got a bit more to it, then, in that
0: sense, both are considered pretty um, significant and weighty in terms of their influence. But unknown pleasures for a debut album, as well, is incredible. Um, I really recommend if you haven't listened to Much joy Division and you haven't listened to this kind of style, you don't really listen to much of. Even if you don't listen to much of the Cure or anything, start with that because that's a lot more accessible. Um, it's got kind of, it's more. Of your upbeat kind of almost poppy stuff in it in some ways yeah it's got um, a bit more of that that new order tinge yeah um but yeah i mean it's it's sad to think this was a band that basically only really existed for i mean total i think it was like four years but only released two albums um but their influence has extended obviously massively not just through the form of new order but uh, I mean, U2 and The Cure credited the Joy Division, both their pieces of work. Um, Radiohead have said both these pieces of work were massively part of, like Tom York talked about how significant it was for him. Um, Nine Inch Nails, Neurosis, Interpol, Block Party, Editors, even rapper, uh, rappers like Danny Brown and Vince Staples um, have kind of talked about it. Run the Jewels
1: have, um, we spoke about it last week. LP loves yeah. this sort of stuff. Um,
0: it's pretty impressive. Um, Idol is huge on this style brand. as well. Yeah.
1: If you're looking at a more yeah. modern band.
0: Definitely yeah, Idol are a good comparison. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's quite a sad story, but it's also a very significant, um, I think a very significant development in especially British uh, rock music and the kind of post-punk. Yeah, and I move. think the way
1: Joy Division moved, I mean, we'll, we'll speak about it a lot one. Sure, in this series, I'll bring forward a Cure album, um, and I'm sure we potentially even bring forward a uh, Smith's album or something like that, or Depeche Mode. But um, the way that they made this move to an alternative scene, like we spoke about at the start, about how 80s saw genres starting to split and these little groups and stuff starting to separate a lot more than what they were. This is definitely one of the starts of how you could use a guitar differently, the way the tone is and the way it's used. I mean, typically. Um, if you look at this album, it starts off with a few more what you'd consider singles, "Atrocity uh, Exhibition," "Colony," etc., and then it goes into a few more expansive songs towards the end. But like the guitar work on something like "Colony" is, if you listen to that, and then you listen to like a lot play, all the bands you mentioned there, Jack, um, that is so the tone, the way it's used, so um, replicated or um, uses influence uh, in terms of how uh, it's different from what else was around at this
0: time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that kind of covers it pretty well. Is there anything you want to add?
1: No, I think that pretty much. Co- I mean, that, I think that covers the album. But, um, I'm sure, we'll, obviously, we'll get onto the songs and stuff at the end. But yeah, um, without us going too much into Joy Division as a whole, I think that's great. Yeah.
0: So coming up in third. Our third album of the episode is Back in Black, ACDC. Um, this is probably the biggest of the episode. In fact, I'm pretty sure this is the biggest album we've done on the podcast so far. Comfortably. Comfortably. It well, not comfortably, is. but like, um, it, yeah, definitely. Is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, it was released in 1980, obviously, like all of them, and... Um, it was the first album released by ACDC with their new frontman, Brian Johnson, after the death of Bon Scott. Uh, I think that was also... He died, I believe, in 1980. He died it? right at the
1: start of February, something like that, yeah.
0: yeah. Alcohol. Um, after, yeah, night out in London. Um, died in the back of a Renault. Poor guy. Can't think of anything worse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, so he obviously passed away. We talked kind of earlier about how in Joy Division's case, they kind of ripped it all up and started again. Um, but they, ACDC, decided to do something different. So they decided to recruit a new frontman and they went for Brian Johnson um, from, I think he's Northern. I believe he's Geordie. He's Geordie, and he was in a
1: band Johnson. called Geordie.
0: Yeah, I thought so, yeah. Um, so obviously, ACDC are Scottish-Australian. I mean, they're technically Australian, but the, both the young brothers are Scottish um, originally. Uh, and they released this and it is, I mean, everyone would have heard Back in Black. When I first heard it, I think, age six, the actual song itself, because no, that was the walk-on, no music for, the walk-on music for Wasps. So I used to know it from that. Um, when I used to go to the rugby with my dad. Um, but yeah, I mean, we talked at the start about how this didn't feature in the top 10 albums sold. It's pretty insane because... This is the fourth best-selling album in U.S. history. Do you know how many times platinum is in in America? Twenty-five, something bonkers like that, isn't it? Right, yeah, hang on, twenty-five. It's insane. It's like insane. It's so- it's,
1: yeah, it this this record is something of a powerhouse. I think is. Um, yeah, I was I was I've put this in my notes here. I mean, we're going to dive a bit, probably a bit more into the background of it, but I put this in my notes um, to kind of question you: Is this the greatest rock album ever? In terms of straightforward
0: rock, like, yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, I can't think of many that are. Like, I mean, you could probably put some Led Zeppelin,
1: and you could probably there. put Guns and Roses in and stuff like that.
0: Stones, you probably slide in, but their stones are kind of more rock and roll, and
1: Led Zeppelin a bit more expansive. It's like in terms of like just straight power chords and singles.
0: Yeah, I think you're probably not far off. Like, what a, What a way for Brian Johnson to start.
1: Yeah, I know. It's it's. I mean, let's, let's put this... We're going in the background. Highway to Hell was released in 1979. This was a year after what a lot of people yeah. would consider... What was considered their best work to
0: date, pretty much. Yeah, that was the album that took them global. Yeah. Highway to Hell took them from just being this kind of Aussie band to being this global f- phenomenon. And then this was like them putting the nail in the coffin and being like, right, we're here. Like I, I listen to this album. I should probably go back to this album a lot, considering...
1: You know, obviously when you go list ACC you can just go back and listen to the singles, but in terms of like an album, I just, I, I love this. I think I mentioned not long after we started the podcast, how I was going to try and find a way to squeeze bringing this in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it blows me away to think about this is their comeback album. Like you've got to think within, it wasn't it was about six months, their front man died. They recruited Brian Johnson. They went to the Bahamas, Brian Johnson and the, and the young brothers, uh, Went and wrote. So Brian Johnson was involved in the writing. It wasn't like he was given songs to sing. He was yeah, involved. They, in the writing.
0: they decided not to use any Bond Scott recorded stuff because they thought they they'd be profiting off his death. So they were just like, we don't want to do that. We want to do it all new, kind of in that aspect. So all freshly written. And the whole thing about the Bahamas. Do you know when they got there? There was these massive storms, storms and stuff. And that, way. and that's what's referenced at the start of Hell's Bells. They talk about the storms. That's what because apparently um. Brian Johnson was really worried about them and so he ended up writing. Yeah, because he, about he it. hadn't been like
1: in these one of these massive world class uh, like world dominating groups yet, so he didn't quite know the level. And I think that's um yeah, I just the fact that he comes in, writes these songs, and then just Oh yeah, by the way, here's our here's our comeback album with a new front man.
0: Yeah. I yeah, mean it's there's there's yeah. Um the, the thing with the Bahamas as well there's some funny stories that came from that because where they were recording was like this kind of rackety place. So originally they were, they were going to record it in London um, at some like rental yeah, studio. They, they couldn't
1: get a studio in the time slot they wanted because yeah. they wanted to get it out quickly. Then, they wanted to make a statement. Yeah.
0: So someone suggested Bahamas because of the tax break. Um, so they were just like, all right, that sounds fun. And apparently while they were in there, the studio they were in was just so kind of almost ramshackled. And that's like, It took them a while to get the sound right, and during one recording, a crab just started walking across, and they had to stop because this crab just started walking across (laughs) the the studio. studio. It's pretty crazy, I mean, and if you think about it, you hear all these
1: stories about ACDC and how, like, they're especially in the '80s, how they're a party band. Imagine them in the (laughs) Bahamas.
0: Yeah, it would have been insane.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, the fact that they would come out with these songs, like every every song on this album, could have been a single. Like it could, they could so easily have stuck "Back in Black" as an album track and brought out um "Have a Drink I mean, on Me" Shriek or something. To yeah, shoot wasn't it. Yeah, exactly. Second song on, it just comes out there. Just it's it's yeah. like you listen to this album. If you've never listened to this album, you will listen to this album, and you would have heard about half of this album at least once. I think I, I almost guarantee it. It's iconic. It's not that long,
0: it's only about. 38 minutes, something like yeah,
1: that. 10 tracks, something like that. Like, it is straightforward, yeah. there's nothing too expansive about it. There are brilliant solos in there, like proper dad air guitar solos, yeah. proper choruses. Um, there's a bit in Back and Black, as big as that song is, there's a bit in Black and Back where right at the end where it sounds like it's gonna fade out, and you think, Oh, that's the song over every time, and then he just goes, Oh, yes, it is, and it just kicks back in with that solo for like another 45. Like, that's that's like a pinnacle of like a fuck yeah moment in songs, like.
0: So many songs this is an haven't. album I think universally people just, I think, just like. like it has yeah. so many bits in it. Like if It's also, you... this was quite significant for the genre. Because people talk about it, like, um, in the research, Like I found that there was a lot of discussion about how, at the time, kind of heavier rock and almost, obviously this isn't metal, but the metal genre was kind of looking at a decline. And this album came out, and kind of obviously their previous album, and kind of helped revive that kind of heavier, harder rock style that had been starting to fade. Um, yeah, 100 obviously- um, we, we, we,
1: we didn't really speak about the other albums released this year, from that, especially from that genre, but you had Motorhead, Ace of Spades, uh, yeah. their best album. You had Judah Priest, British Steel, their best album. So it definitely was a point in the 80s where I think hard rock, I, th- I suppose, is the best way to describe it, where it's that yeah. pre-metal but still but a bit heavier than, say, someone like Led Zeppelin.
0: Um, would come in that had been fading but like obviously Highway to Hell was massive this and the albums we just you just mentioned there obviously were a big part of that turning around and helping develop into probably partially the metal genre we have obviously Iron Maiden their debut was released this year
1: yeah yeah, Um, a lot of people's favourite Iron Maiden record it actually um, yeah, uh, there's. I mean, yeah, on, the, on that influence, if you look at someone like Guns N' Roses, um, obviously, I had bands like Aerosmith still around, but like someone like Guns N' Roses, where they've got that slightly harder edge to them than a lot of the other glam rock. Something like this, where it does come out. And it also, the the um, aesthetic of this album as well, you've got to think. Like, going to the late 70s, into the early 80s, glam rock was all these bright colors. They release an album that's a black cover in, in right. mourning.
0: Hey, that, yeah, that. Label had to plea with them to get the gray outline of the logo until then. They just wanted it straight black,
1: straight black cover. And then to go with that, and then ACDC typically aren't a very brightly colored band after this point either. Um, that whole style was just yeah, sensational. Um, I mean, there's I think a lot of people often talk on like social media and stuff like, what's the greatest three song punch like on an album. Uh, this has a very big case for one of those. In "Let Me Put My Love Into You," "Back in Black," into "You Shook Me All Night Long."
0: Yeah, I mean, probably
1: if if you saw those three live back to back, you will be on the floor at the end of them because you would have sunk about ten pints in that time.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are knee weakeners in a purely musical sense. Not <laughs> yeah, that's.
1: Um, I mean, and we want to talk about a bit about ACDC. They're one of these bands that you could see live, they could play a two and a half hour set and it would be all bangers from start to finish. Yeah. Um and most of that set will probably be this album. I think this might I think this is the, my this is my favourite A C D C album. I know I know a lot of people like the Bond Scott years and tend to lean on Highway to Hell and stuff like that. But this is yeah,
0: I think there aren't many bands that you could say could do that either. You think about it like of the modern era, I can only really think of probably Foo Fighters. Who, are obviously, the most iconic one that could do something like that. Yeah, you could actually, together yeah, a two and a half hour set, like you said there. I mean, Foo Fighters. Yeah, even even if you look at the, like the big bands doing stadiums, so like Green
1: Day could potentially push it, but even then, they've got some stinkers yeah. in their catalog. Guns yeah. and Roses. Yeah, pull out some... Guns and Roses only have three good albums, so it's not like they've got a like. Yeah, um, yeah it's a really tough one, you know. Like, in terms of like legacy bands as well, like, there's no new band that can really pull out a set that long and keep it bangers. Like, we're not just talking good songs, we're talking singles here. Like, um, yeah, which is brilliant. Um, it's really hard to like look into this album and find critiques. I mean, this record, this podcast episode has been very positive. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, do
0: It's hard because obviously we, we look at these albums now and we can only really see the positive like good things they led to. I mean, we have the rose tinted glasses because we know how significant they went on to be. I think if we were to listen in the moment, we'd find criticisms. Yeah, Um, uh, particularly if you... For example, we talked about Closer, obviously, earlier. We could criticise that on how inaccessible it was. But at the time, you would be able to say that. But now, we know kind of the impact that that had as a whole. So it's it's harder to be critical when you're looking retrospectively. And especially with, like, this, like, uh, if you were
1: listening to this and you... Imagine when this was released, and you were an ACDC fan, and you loved Bon Scott. Like, although there are similarities in both of their vocal styles, there's definitely a difference, and there's actually a difference in how the songs are written. Um, the yeah. Back in Black and/or or the Brian Johnson era of ACDC is a lot more stompy style, sort of hey hey sort of thing. Whereas yeah. uh, Bon Scott had they had this almost flow with the lead um, style in it, and you can definitely see why people have a preference particularly uh, of an older generation i suppose when they were around when this came out i mean even our generation have a preference to types of acdc um but at the end of the day you can't really say much past these singles i don't think um i do have one criticism though Go on. uh they should have opened with back and back in black it's, yeah, your comeback, it's, it's your comeback album stick it at the start and it does have an iconic intro yeah like title so, track, it's your comeback album. The song is called "Back in Black." Yeah, stick it at the start as as a statement of intent goes. Like "Hell's Bells" is brilliant. Like, don't, don't get me wrong, "Hell's Bells." Yeah, is, "Hell's bells
0: didn't really strike me as an opening track. Even no, really.
1: if you stick "Hell's Bells" in the middle, stick it after something like a bit something slower, like "Let Me Put My Love Into You." Slows down, and then you have the "Bells," the "Hell's Bells" to pick up side B. Yeah. Mint. But yeah, that's that's a really pathetic criticism to say, considering how good the song I'm kicking out is. When
0: you're picking apart the song order, it's um, it's a quite good album. Yeah, just a bit. So I think I think we've kind of covered that. Should we should we talk about which songs we're going to save? And yeah,
1: start? yeah. So we finished spunking a load, I think a bit. So. And now it's time for the part of the show where we decide which albums we are saving from the apocalypse and which songs we are saving from the apocalypse. So, as you probably know by now, each episode, myself and Jack choose a song each from the albums we discuss to put into a playlist, Songs to Be Saved, which you can find on Spotify. Uh, the link to that's also in our Instagram bio and Facebook bio and stuff. Um, and that's getting quite big now, that uh, playlist. Uh, have you listened to it yet, Jack? I gave it a quick listen this week.
0: Quite like quite fun to listen back to the stuff we talked about yeah and there's, there's a
1: huge mix of genres on there um yeah. so yeah if, if you haven't you know if you haven't checked out any of our previous episodes go and listen to that and you can get an idea of what albums we cover um and then you can find out which episode they're on quite easily by looking at our instagram so i suppose we should we we'll start at the beginning with uh dolly parton nine to five and odd jobs as we mentioned it's probably one of the biggest surprises so far the podcast in terms of not only how much we liked it but also the meaning behind it. So, Jack, are you saving it?
0: Yeah, I want to save this. I want to save it. I, um A, I think it's great to have some variety in there. It's nice to have a bit of country. But B, it's just also a really good album. So, yeah, I want to save this. Yeah, I'm fully back That Like we said, it
1: really caught me off guard in terms of how good it was. I wasn't expecting too much apart from Beyond 9 to 5, the single and the cover of House of Rising Sun. So, yeah, Um saving that one. Jack... What song are you saving?
0: So I ummed and about this because there's kind of three or four that I really like. Um, Detroit is really good. Um, and obviously I think I know what you're going to go for. So I'm going to pick her cover of the House of the Rising Sun. Although I said it, I don't think it's my favourite cover of it. I still think it's really good. She's done a really good job. And I think it's such a great song that yeah. I and it's, it it's a bit
1: different to everything else in terms of how the synths lead it rather than yeah. the guitar and stuff.
0: Yeah. And, and she the way she uses the notes and holds the notes and kind of mixes with the... Doesn't mix the story much, but she presents it slightly differently So And it still sounds like her. Ooh. It still sounds like Dolly. Yeah. It's not instantly recognisable as the song until you kind of get into it. So it starts off, you wouldn't really know. But yeah, I, I, I'm going with that. All right, awesome. What did you think I was going to pick? Deep or T?
1: No, I wasn't actually. Ooh. I was gonna. I'm going to pick "Hushabye Hard Times" because that guitar lick. I'm not going to sing it for you guys, unfortunately. Um, has been stuck in my head since I, since I listened since I first listened to this and sent Jack a message. In fact, that was a song that made me send Jack a message, going, "This album's actually really good." I think. Okay, um,
0: that's fair. It's a very good reason to pick it.
1: All right, on to our second album, which is Joy Division. Closer. Now, Jack, you mentioned that you prefer unknown pleasures, but are you keeping closer?
0: So this week does have the potential of being a clean sweep, but I don't think I want to save this because I thought until this morning I was going to say saving it. But I kind of realized that I'd, some people who would have been listening the whole way will know. A few weeks ago, we didn't save Channel Orange on the premise that Blonde is a better better album. And on that exact same premise, I think I don't want to save Closer because I think I would prefer to save Unknown Pleasures just because I think you would have to save Unknown Pleasures. Um, As much as they're both amazing albums, I want to have Unknown Pleasures instead of Closer. You know, there's only so much room in the bunker oh wow oh this might be an argument then because do you want to save it i want to save it because i think this is better
1: than unknown pleasures um i think it's like we mentioned i think it's a bit more expansive which is what we've talked about in terms of singles and i think in terms of a lot of the music i like i suppose is a good way so you mentioned nine inch nails neurosis i did mention deftones um who funnily enough their masterpiece just turned 20 yesterday as of recording um White Pony, which is heavily influenced by Joy Division, and I think more so this album than Unknown Pleasures, in the sense the way the guitars and synths, or I don't even know, synths, I just want to, I suppose, the best way is just the slightly more electronic elements beyond the standard guitar music that would have been expected around those times, um, link up and create this transcendent, darker vocal style that is so common if you put. Essentially, any genre where you put a post in front of post punk, post hardcore, post metal, post rock, um, post man, whatever they um, they they owe a lot to this album. I think more so than Unknown Pleasures. I think Unknown Pleasures is a hit. Is not I don't want to say hit factory isn't probably the wrong term, but when you look at Unknown Pleasures, I think The Cure did that slightly more, not poppy, but a bit more that slightly more. Um, accessible style better whereas this darker more brooding style joy division due to a standard on this level which is very rarely
0: if ever been matched hmm. yeah okay i see i completely see your point and i agree with most of the things you said um i think to be fair as an album this presents not only Joy Division, but like Ian Curtis at the kind of peak of his powers. Like, I think in a weird way, like because obviously, it's sad to think for what followed, and the, well, it, what followed the recording of it at least. Um, but it kind of does represent that side very well. So, hmm,
1: I think you've got to I look at his, the way his vulnerable vocals are, like you've got to think something like this has been for a songwriter to be so, I mean, he did it on Unknown Pleasures. I'm not saying that Unknown Pleasures is a happy album by any means. Um But uh
0: the
1: way he did it on this record in the sense that he would be very inward in how he spoke um and the way he wrote his lyrics is very, is something that I think, def- and it's, it's success as well. We should also talk about like the way this was covered, not in so much in the mainstream, but the way it, achieved some recognition since then i'm
0: pretty sure it got nearly all five stars pardon like nearly every outlet gave it five stars yeah yeah it, that's what i
1: mean like it's it got this recognition for a music st- or in the 80s like if this was released in the 90s or the 2000 and it had unknown pleasures before it i think then i might be a bit more lenient towards unknown pleasures um but as we spoke about last week about flume in the sense that it might not be a perfect album but its impact and its influence I think, has to be taken into account. And I think this has a bit more influence than, say, Unknown Pleasures in the sense that...
0: Okay, I'm on board with that. Also, think about it. It's very... It'll be hard for us to get Unknown Pleasures into the podcast anytime soon. So... but By the yeah. time we get it,
1: we'd have had an extension to the bunker and a greenhouse and...
0: Yeah, and the you know, and stuff. Wi-Fi uh, set. Yeah, exactly. Right, I think you've convinced me. We'll save it. Amazing. Awesome. So the songs then, um, I'll
1: start with you again. Uh, a bit of an interesting one for the songs on this one, because they are slightly different in terms of how it starts a bit more singly and goes into a bit more expansive. Yeah.
0: Song. So I really like, I really like Passover. Um, that's a really good song. I actually quite like the opening track. Um, what's it called? It's the uh, Exhibition. The Exhibition. Yeah. Um, even though, weirdly, the band themselves didn't... Well, Peter Hook and um, Bernard Sumner didn't like it. They thought they're, that... They're quite a
1: moody yeah, band, I <laughs> think. I mean, that's that comes across in the music, yeah.
0: but... <laughs> yeah. Um, but they thought Hannah had played with it too much and taken away the kind of raw sound a bit much. But with the way the sound works, like, I think you kind of expect that. But I'm going to go for the last song on the album, Decades. Was that what you wanted to pick? No, no, not
1: at all, not at all. Um, I, I'm quite happy you picked that because I picked, a I think, a slightly more, a less expansive one, I think.
0: So, yeah. yeah, but I really like that song because it does kind of typify. It is one of the, like you say, one of the more like spacey, distant songs on there, but it's so well done. The bass on it is amazing. The kind of way they use drums kind of in and out is so good. But yeah, I'm picking uh, Decades. I really like that. So I've gone for uh 24 hours um
1: primarily because i think it's got some of the best lead guitar work um on it and as we were speaking about on the discussion about the album and just now in how it's influential that um alternative style of lead guitar where it's not a look at me i can play guitar it's a very like almost hidden you've got to kind of search for it with your ears um but it's it sort of the way it carries and pushes yeah. the his vocals is something that really caught my eye my eye my ear on that song Yeah. The mixing on this album is exceptional.
0: So Yes, yeah, definitely definitely
1: huge. huge. Um we were listening to a remastered version. I am assuming you were listening to the same one, which has definitely helped. Um but that being said, it doesn't stop it being a cracking album. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. On to the final one. The biggest album we have probably ever covered. I mean it is, isn't it? Um I think in terms of sales. Um, 20
0: million sales. 20,
1: yeah. 25 times platinum. Um, the comeback album of all comeback albums. Jack, you saving it? Yes. Yeah. But I think, I think we'd be, uh, we'd have to cancel the podcast if we didn't save this one. I think we'd be, uh, we should be crucified if, if we decided not to save.
0: it. I, know I always do this, but to put it in the context of the podcast, this is, if you had to ask me to pick an album, for like apocalypse scenario and have to li- listen to it while dealing with whatever it may be zombies, you know, anything like that. I think this would be pro- like yeah. in general. Oh, percent. If anyone ever asked me just to
1: like put an album on, this is probably one of my go-to albums. Like if you were like in a car and someone said, just put a record on. Yeah. Like you'd probably, this is cause it's no one dislikes this album. And if you don't like this album, have a few beers, listen to this album. If you don't like it, then get your ears checked. Um,
0: yeah. Think about what's going on. <laughs> Yes, to think where you are in life. <laughs> um,
1: so songs yeah. time. Um so many to pick on this one. Um this was actually quite easy for me to pick because it has my favourite ACDC song on it. But I'm gonna let you go first. Um
0: seeing, I as, re- I, seeing as I stole re- Pompeii
1: from yeah. you last week. I'm gonna
0: <laughs> Yeah, then you left me with what did I pick again? Laura Palmer. Oh that's it, Laura Palmer. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I not a good song anyway, but um I'm gonna pick "Shoot to Thrill." Is that your favorite? No, no, it's not. It's not. It's not. No. Massive. Song. I think my favorite is um, "is Thunderstruck" because yeah. that is a special theme for both me and Amos. It was our football team's warm-up song, our Sixers side team. So, the red um, ties. That's us. Awesome. This is, "Shoot to Thrill" is my favorite on this album. I think it's so good.
1: Yeah, I, I can You can't argue with it. Like when it comes to a band like ACDC, when you say it's your favorite song. Often yeah. when you say something like that, you, it implies that it's their best song, but it's just they're just one of these bands that everyone you meet's going to have a different favourite, and that's just because awesome. of how good they are.
0: I'm afraid to say there was no way I was going to put Shook Me All Night Long, because I worked at a pub in Australia for eight months, and there were enough shit Aussie bands covering that for me to be like, I don't like the song anymore. Oh, that's, Even that's listening a, to it again, it was slightly ruined. That's fortunate,
1: because that's my favourite ACDC song. <laughs>
0: Is it? Yeah. No way. The, the way the you guitar- whatever you do, do not try and take your craft to Australia because you will find yourself hating. That oh, song. have you
1: seen? I'm not allowed to go to Australia until next year now. They've closed really? all, completely off-topic, but they've closed all
0: borders here. Yeah, yeah you your ears will be safe.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know why it's just my favourite, but ever since I've been listening to AC/DC, it's just the one song that I've just absolutely adored, and the way it comes in on this album after Back in Black as well, just <laughs> straight into my veins.
0: Yeah. I've listened to enough 40-year-old Australian men in trousers, leather trousers, seeing this yeah, in can... a pub in Wales to be, sadly, have the, the glory of it taken away a little bit. But um, it is a good pick. And until that experience, I would have put it probably in my top 10 ACDC songs.
1: Well, I mean, in a comp- another complete tangent, but it's a bit like Sweet Child of Mine of uh, Guns N' Roses. Cracking song. Yeah. But I don't ever need to hear it again because I've heard it so much from covers and everything. Yeah. I can can fully understand your point on that. All right, so that's it for the albums. It's our first ever clean sweep. Um, I think we might be getting a few of these in this mini-series. It depends. We're going to try and look at some more interesting albums when we do other years, not just go for the classics. But it'd be rude not to include classics because there are so many. So um, don't be Also, it's
0: hard because, as we kind of talked on earlier, obviously, with retrospect, we know the significance of some albums. And sometimes it would be foolish not to talk about them. Like I I was happy you picked Dolly Parton because that was different um, and not what I would have expected to have listened to. But we still put it in because it was a really good album. Yeah,
1: like and But there are albums like, so we almost had UB40 in this week, um, which I don't think would have got in. (laughs) But that sort of thing. So yeah, that's our first clean sweep and I'm intrigued to see where we go with this series because it's quite interesting to dive into someone like Dolly Parton and stuff we maybe haven't touched on too much album-wise. Um, in terms of the songs we're saving, it could have been a anything from any album this week, I think. It's probably our best week. I mean, Clean Sweep shows that, but you have House of the Rising Sun from by Jack, and I chose Hushabai Hard Times from the Dolly album. Uh, then from the closer, Joy Division's final album, Jack chose Decades, and I chose 24 Hours. And then from the Behemoth and the Comeback of All Comebacks in Back in Black, Jack chose Shoot to Thrill, and I chose You Shook Me All Night Long. So I suppose it's time we get on to discussing what next week's theme is. Um, we had a few we were, had a few th- ideas thrown out there from us and from others, but we think we're going to go for... Um, Jack, I think one of your friends actually suggested this to you, didn't he? His guilty Pleasures? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if you want to shout out his oh, name. Zach.
0: Shout out to Zach, um, if he's listening. Uh, yeah, Guilty Pleasures. So that's kind of anything that either um, the artist is super unpopular or it's kind of a bit of a taboo um, pick because people don't like that album. So for example, I'm very tempted. I'm not sure yet, but I'm tempted to pick uh, a Bieber album. Um, but those are like a good example, just kind of anything that is like people love to hate that kind of stuff. So you can even say like Taylor Swift, for example, or um, you're kind of classic guilty pleasures. So I'm sure everyone's got some, some stuff in their locker that you know maybe they you know when you're at the party and you've given the orcs cable you're kind of hiding and making sure it doesn't come up in shuffle that's the kind of stuff we want to hear
1: yeah it's the sort of stuff that if you were to put it on it wouldn't be a oh what's that it would be a oh for fuck's sake turn it off sort of thing um yeah it's yeah like we said it's artists that you love to hate albums that people love to hate so it can be an artist that's widely loved but they may be released an album that everyone dislikes but you actually quite like. Um, so many things in there but essentially just something that an album yeah guilty pleasure is the best way to describe it in the two words i think um so i'm, I'm looking forward I'm to your choices to be, on that one i think yeah quite interesting
0: well, your uh, your suggestions instagram is albums for the apocalypse um that's probably the best way to interact with us uh we'll be putting up our submission box on there on tuesday so this is going up on monday so um tomorrow if you are listening on the day of release um but yeah so put your submissions in we'll do the draw every week we do draws on wednesdays um 6 p.m on instagram live and yeah i think that has been a good start into our foray into the 80s yes
1: i think uh, i want to do one more note on the 80s thing is if there's an album from a, if there's a year you want us to talk about an album from a year suggest it because we don't have to do it chronologically
0: we can jump between if we if there's yeah. certain stuff like, yeah. um, the nothing, start nothing started with 1980 itself because that represents obviously the um where music was at the start of the decade, but now we've kind of done that, we can go into kind of 85, 87, look at how things had changed by that point. Um, so because obviously that is the big thing, like we talked about at the start, like the, the development of music during the 80s was so significant and so kind of rapid to some extent like you think about what's happened during the 10s although it's not been a bad decade for music musical development hasn't kind of been anything near to the level as it was in the 80s and not in the mainstream success and classic album wise
1: exactly Uh, so yeah uh, so yeah give give us your suggestions for guilty pleasures and give us your suggestions for any album from the 1980s and if we feel like that's quite a good one we'll we'll choose that year for the next time we do it in a few episodes time uh thank you once again for listening thanks for all your feedback and suggestions as always
0: Uh, See you next week. Adios.